Hello, and welcome to a special two-part episode of Sundowners. You're listening to part one, Sounding Industrial Places. I'm Sarah Rovang, the Society of Architectural Historians 2017 H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellow. As usual, I'm joined on this podcast by my spouse and sometime traveling companion, John Golden. Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. It's good to be here. I like to call myself the H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellows Fellow. But anyway, if you've been following this podcast, you know that it's usually structured as a conversation. But today we're doing something a little different. This episode will unfold as a spoken word essay, soundtracked by many of the ambient and interpretive soundscapes I've encountered during my travels. John has offered to provide another voice as part of this essay and do a little voice acting, which you'll hear in a minute. And this two-part podcast will double as your monthly blog post for the Society of Architectural Historians, right? Yes, exactly. So if you want to read a written transcript of this podcast along with supplementary visual materials, please go to sah.org, where there's a link to the Brooks blog on the homepage. You will also be able to find footnotes and reference materials there, along with more complete descriptions of the various sound clips we'll be playing throughout both episodes. And as a bit of background for those new to the podcast, I traveled with Sarah in Chile, Japan, and South Africa for the first half of her Brooks Fellowship during 2018. Since then, I've been back home watching the dogs while she continues her travels abroad. So we're recording this via Skype. My audio is captured by a nice desktop mic, and hers is coming through AirPods. So that explains the difference in audio quality. Anyway, in these two episodes, we'll be placing particular emphasis on the places that Sarah has traveled solo in Europe since January. In part one, Sounding Industrial Places, we'll talk about the soundscapes of industrial heritage, how sound impacts our experience of architecture, and how we can understand the different types of sound we might encounter at an industrial heritage site. In part two, listening to the industrial past, we'll talk about what it means to hear industrial heritage sites as contemporary listeners, and how sound can be effectively curated and deployed as part of a public history experience. So put on a pair of stereo headphones and get ready for this extended two-part episode on architecture, sound, and industrial heritage. Last month, I made a journey to the coal mining landscape of Wallonia in southern Belgium. Here, four 19th century coal mines share a UNESCO inscription. Upon arriving at the Bois du Casier, a mine about one and a half hours south of Brussels, I picked up an audio guide. And I imagine that by this point in your stint as the H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellow, you've listened to your fair share of audio guides in all kinds of industrial heritage places. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of different approaches. This audio guide, though, was a little different. Instead of the omniscient third-person narrator, you know, the one who sounds like this. On your left, you will see the remnants of an 1895 coal shaft. Note in particular the fine craftsmanship of the Flemish brickwork. This one featured two voice actors playing the roles of Luigi and Monica, a former coal miner and his sister. It was an interesting idea and surprisingly effective. In the story created by the guide, the character of Luigi was returning to the site for the first time since a tragic accident in 1956. This catastrophic event claimed the lives of over 250 miners at the site. 
many of them Italian immigrants like Luigi and his family. The first few stops on the audio guide feature Luigi reacting to the site's transformation from working mine to touristified industrial heritage site. Wow, it's so quiet now. You can even hear the birds chirping. It's so peaceful, so nice. How will people ever know what the mine was actually like? How will they know what that day was like? The day of the accident. This commentary was some of the first that I've heard to acknowledge how industrial heritage places change once they are transformed from active working sites into curated heritage sites for public use. Beyond that, the audio guide addressed the idea that this transformation is not limited purely to the visual component, but to the complete sensory experience. And how did that change the way you were interacting with this particular site? Well, Luigi's comments prompted me, once I was done with the audio guide, to listen more consciously as I explored the site. For example, later in the afternoon, I climbed one of the former slag heaps at the site, which today is laced with hiking and biking trails. Besides the occasional shout of kids playing soccer in the distance, or the roar of a jet overhead, the only sounds I could hear were those of birds chirping and the leaves of new-growth trees rustling around me. The process of noting and recording sounds in the various places I've visited has given me new tools to engage with the site. As an architectural historian with only a few years of studio training and a graduate education in an art history program, I usually rely on visual perception in making sense of an architectural space. So why did you choose to focus on sound specifically for this project? Well, I didn't pick sound as an aspect of the study because I'm a gifted audio engineer or even because I'm especially attuned to sound. I guess I chose to focus on sound for two reasons. The first was aspirational. I mean, the only way I was going to get better at listening was if I actually practiced. And the second? Well, the second was because of all of the other senses we engage when we explore a space, Sound, besides sight, is the sense most transmissible through digital media. I might not be able to share with you the chill of a mercury mine in Slovenia or the chocolatey smell of a cocoa factory in the Netherlands, but I can upload a relatively high-fidelity audio recording of both of those places and at least give listeners an approximation of what those sites sounded like. And through that, perhaps bring our listeners a different impression of those industrial heritage spaces. So I want to start today then by talking briefly about what kinds of sounds we might hear at an industrial heritage site. Right. So let's run through a few examples. To start with, as at any tourism site, you're probably going to hear the sounds of other people at that site with you. There might be conversation, footsteps, or the sounds of other visitors engaging with different interpretive displays or activities. Depending on whether the site is outside or not, there might also be natural sounds created by weather events, flora, or fauna. 
there will probably be some incidental sounds. Depending on the site's location, there might be the sound of a plane passing overhead, or of car traffic. Or for an indoor site, maybe the roar of the ventilation system in the background. In addition to these incidental sounds, there's the whole range of sound that has been curated as part of the visitor experience, what we might call intentional or interpretive sound. The first and most obvious part of the interpretive soundscape is one we've already mentioned, the audio guide or audio tour. As we move through the site listening, the audio narration becomes part of our sound experience of that heritage space. And, depending on whether that guide is transmitted through headphones, or the single speaker model where you hold the guide up to one ear, the audio guide may or may not make it more difficult to hear and notice other sounds. Or, the audio narration might be a shared experience, such as this voiceover at the gold-pouring demonstration at Gold Reef City Theme Park in Johannesburg, South Africa. Down. You are on your way to the rock race. The last shift yesterday set the judges, did the blasting. You know, when you get there, you'll find broken rock, rock that exploded late yesterday afternoon. But there are other types of sounds that are used in an interpretive and intentional capacity to shape the visitor experience of a space. At an industrial heritage site, we might hear the sounds created by operational machines on site, such as the 17th century windmill turning at Zanschans in the Netherlands. Or, to give a more contemporary example powered by electricity, this industrial cotton loom at the Museum of Industry in Ghent, Belgium. also hear recorded sounds played on loudspeakers, through sound cones, or through other sound transmission devices. Back at the Bois du Casier in Belgium, there was also a recreation of a mine gallery, or tunnel, complete with an atmospheric sound installation. And all of these sounds, whether recorded or live, intentional or incidental, interact with the spaces where they are generated. Broadly speaking, you can say that sound activates space. However, theoreticians of sound sometimes argue whether the sound component of a place can be separated out from the holistic impression of space we get as embodied beings. So, in other words, sound is just one of many non visual sensory inputs that our bodies receive while exploring an environment. There's the temperature of the space, the feeling of the materials, the smell. And I guess so you could say that it's it's hard to isolate just the sound from all the rest of that experience? Exactly. And I do believe that sound is part of a more complex, emergent phenomenon. 
that with those other senses forms our overall experience of the space. But I also think that by considering sound in isolation, we can still learn new things about the built environment, which, as an architectural historian, is ostensibly my aim. So, how can we think about the soundscape of an industrial heritage site more concretely? Well, the term soundscape was coined in the 1960s by R. Murray Schaefer, a composer and audio ecologist. Because of Schaefer's background, much of sound studies has its origins in the environmental movement. Many of the first works by Schaefer and his followers focus on the ecological aspects of sound, using terms drawn from environmental studies, such as the, quote, overpopulation of sound. Or even just think of the title of Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. Soundscapes were used as a way of understanding changing global ecology. The decline or extinction of certain species could be observed through their absence from the soundscape. Schaefer's pioneering work on sound has given us many of the terms that scholars of sound still use today to describe the makeup of a soundscape. We're not going to go through Schaefer's full theory here, but there will be links on the SAH website where you can learn more. As more scholars continued to contribute to the emerging field of sound studies, certain critiques developed of Schaefer's original idea of the soundscape. One of these was that Schaefer's soundscape seemed to be a kind of acoustical data set the net sum of the sounds in a place. For cultural historians, this presented a problem. They argued that listening, like seeing, is shaped by cultural expectation. So, some scholars reformulated the idea of a soundscape to include that element of culture. For instance, French historian Alan Corbin suggested that, Like a landscape, a soundscape is simultaneously a physical environment and a way of perceiving that environment. It is both a world and a culture constructed to make sense of that world. We're going to be coming back to this idea in part two, but for now, just keep this in the back of your minds, this notion that sounds are inseparable from all of the cultural baggage they carry. Now let's switch gears for a second and talk about the intersection of sound and architecture. And in particular, let's think of the idea of spatialized sound. To illustrate this idea, we're going to do a little experiment. I'm going to play the same music clip here three times. Here's the second version. And finally, here's the third.
Which of those three recordings called up an image of a place? Probably the second two, right? And how did the auditory quality of those footsteps you heard affect the way you imagined the space? So in the first recording, I created that one while I was walking through the desert landscape around the nitrate mine at Humberstone in Chile. And in the second, I was walking across a creaky wooden floor at the Arts and Metiers Museum in Paris. The echoes and reverberations, along with the human element of the footsteps, naturally creates a sense of space in addition to the musical component. And what kinds of acoustical qualities do we associate with industrial heritage sites? I mean, these come directly from the architectural form and materials of that particular place. Obviously, not all sites are the same, but many industrial places are characterized by large open spaces, you know, the rational and open factory floor, the cylinder of a former gas tank, or the broad sprawl of an airplane hangar. In addition, particularly in later industrial sites, we start to see the use of new materials in large quantities. Concrete, steel, and glass, for example. These materials and the shapes of the spaces themselves create reverberatory effects. For example, you hear this art installation at the Farbfabriken Contemporary Art Museum in Stockholm, and you can instinctively know, without any other information, that you're not listening to, let's say, a living room full of draperies and overstuffed furniture. So now that we've established what a soundscape is and how it might interact with the architecture of a space, let's talk a bit more about how we might categorize sound at a heritage site. We've mentioned the difference between incidental and interpretive sounds already. The next key feature we will address is the source of sound. Is it created by something live on the site that we can see and identify, or is it being piped in? Sound theorists have used the term acousmatique, or acousmatic, to refer to sounds whose sources cannot be seen, such as loudspeakers or any other similar sound transmission device. The term derives from the Greek term acousmatikoi. This referred to certain students of the mathematician Pythagoras, who, as the story goes, had to sit behind a screen and just listen without actually seeing the teacher. And for some sound theorists, using a loudspeaker is the modern equivalent of putting a screen between an orator and the audience. Acousmatic sounds can serve several purposes in a heritage context. They can reanimate the site through the addition of sound that was historically accurate to that space. For instance, here in this recording of the Norshipping Work Museum. The Work Museum was a former textile factory, and the sound installation, which is played in a small enclosed room, is meant to simulate both the quality and the volume of the industrial textile machines that would have been used in this space during the mid-20th century. And don't worry, we turned down the volume for the podcast version.
acousmatic sound might also take the form of spoken narration, such as voice actors or recorded oral histories telling human stories, giving voice to certain experiences. This might also include other non-industrial sounds, such as the actions of daily life. For instance, here at the Pulperia, or general store, of Humberstone Nitrate Mine in Chile, an acousmatic sound recording evokes the sounds and the dialogue of the fabric shop within that general store. Another category of the industrial heritage acousmatic is that of art sounds, installations meant not to recreate the past, but to engage the space in a new auditory way. Here's an example from the Zeitz Museum of Contemporary African Art in Cape Town, where the recording of an unaccompanied choral piece is projected into the museum's core space, which is a vast latticework of concrete grain silos partially carved away to create a new public space for the museum. Sometimes, acousmatic sounds are used metonymically, or as smaller pieces that represent or stand in for the idea of industry, or the industrial revolution, as broad abstract concepts. We'll be talking more about this potentially problematic approach in part two. Yes, we'll be building on the ideas and concepts that we discussed today, and returning to this critical notion that listening is not a neutral act. It might seem like an obvious fact, but the way we hear and make sense of sound is deeply influenced by culture. Many of us, particularly those in predominantly visual fields like art and architectural history, understand that a photograph, let's say, does not 100% represent reality. In other words, the lived moment seemingly preserved in a photograph is in fact gone, irrecoverable, and the image we see in a photograph is not a direct reflection of reality. We've been taught this, and most of us regard photographs with a bit of suspicion, knowing that we are always getting a cropped or photoshopped fragment, mediated by the intentions of the photographer, and edited to make it a hit on Instagram. While this is also true of sound recordings, I think there's less awareness of them as incomplete records of a moment in time and space. We treat acousmatic sounds as acoustical facts rather than as part of a multi-sensory interpreted heritage experience. Frequently, we don't recognize the way in which we, as listeners, are listening in ways that are culturally contingent and colored by our own preconceptions about industry and the very conditions of modernity. Well, that wraps up the first part of our two-part series. Part two, Listening to Industrial Spaces, is now available wherever you get your podcasts. Script, editing, and producing for this episode by me, with additional editing assistance from John Golden. All sounds in this podcast were recorded by me in my capacity as the H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellow, unless otherwise noted. 
You can see more visual material and read the complete transcript of this episode at sah.org. Our theme music, as always, is by the Liminianas, and it wouldn't be an episode of Sundowners without our signature sign-off. Happy trails, listeners. Happy trails, listeners.